Hello and welcome to another episode of the More From Law podcast. I'm your host, Harry Clark. This episode features Luke Thompson, a former partner and family law solicitor of 12 years and now director at Intro Legal, a boutique legal recruitment agency. In this episode, Luke and I discuss what business development is all about and why lawyers need to know about it, as well as his thoughts on his route to partnership and advice. Let's get into it. So hi Luke, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Harry. It's fantastic to have you here. So um, we've been talking a little bit before the show about what uh, this is all about, business development and um, how lawyers can kind of upskill in that sort of area. And one of the things you said to me was that the need to be a good lawyer is essential in one's journey, but without a business case, you're not making partner. So um, hopefully this episode is going to touch a bit on what business development is all what about. A bold and statement, that, isn't it? Yeah, 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 I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> um, and a bit about how that's kind of influenced to uh, your sort of legal career so far. But um, for those who, who haven't who haven't met you, what, what was your sort of background into joining the profession and, and where you are to date? Sure. Yeah. So I was a family solicitor um, for 11 years. So I qualified in 2008 mm-hmm. and I left practice um, a couple of years ago, about two years ago, um, having reached equity partnership in a regional firm, mm-hmm. um, which was great. Um, I think for me, the transition to legal recruitment was um, an interesting one in the sense that I never really set out to become a legal recruiter, um, but I I liked law, but I never really loved law, if that, if that makes sense. So I, but I, I loved business, and I loved business development. I was often, you know, the, 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 the lawyer in the firm that was often wheeled out for various different networking events, you know, even for other departments. So if I was, even though I was a divorce lawyer, I was often then asked to go to company commercial networking events or commercial property meet various developers and it was all rather odd but it yeah. it was a kind of you know it was I think you know to some extent it was a reflection of the, the work I'd put in from a business development point of view from each of the firms I worked at which is which is good um, but I found myself at around I was probably questioning what I was going to do at around nine eight or nine PQE mm-hmm. um, a few of my friends worked in London in you know big big sales and tech companies and they often used to say to me Luke I would have thought legal recruitment would be an obvious transition for you having um, so you had a network in law, being mm. in law, know the industry. So I explored it, you know, one thing led to another. And yeah, so here I am, two years <laughs> later. Um, initially joined a, you know, a great agency in London, um, which was fantastic. Um, and certainly learned the ropes there. And then subsequently um, joined another agency where I'm now one of the directors. So yeah, it's all going very well. That's fantastic. And uh, you've hinted at it a few times in your introductory there, but you said that business development and your skills in that area clearly paid a big part of that. So for listeners who might not have a great understanding as to what business development is or is all about and how it relates to the legal profession, what would you say is your kind of key definition and why it's so important nowadays? I think key definition is I, I see business development very much as your your own personal brand. Mm. Um, I mean, Law is now very much a business. Um, I mean, I often used to say to people, I, I couldn't really remember the last time when I was working law that someone asked me you know, how I got under court or mm. how my case went, what was the result of the case. Um, but I can assure you that I was often regularly asked how much I'd build that month or mm. what I'm looking to build that quarter. Um, so it's about your, your personal brand. And it's a, you've got to ensure that you're known in your industry for what you do. Um, unless you're working for one of the big, big players in London, I think invariably people will want to know you by your name um, and will come to you as opposed to necessarily the brand. 
i.e. Mm. the firm brand. So you are your own brand. And I think business development is key um, in making sure that you stand out from other people. Mm. Um, because as I said, it, we, are, we are now working in a business. So if you don't have that brand, you won't have that following. And as a result of that, you won't be producing any bills. Um, and then that leads on to the, you know, the point I made in my initial statement about then essentially seeking or, or certainly getting retaining partnership. Mm. It's so important. No, that's really interesting. And it, and it also mimics a bit about what I tell students about commercial awareness, which is another kind of phrase that I'm sure students and junior lawyers hear a lot in that you need to understand the firm as a business first, and then how that relates to the client relationship and, and how it fits in with what you're doing. So, you know, commercial awareness is another one of those kind of buzzwords that you hear a lot, I guess, when you're, when you're first starting out. Did you find that you're, you're reliant on that skill as you're kind of pursuing this business development and, and trying to build that personal brand? Absolutely. Commercial awareness is, is, is just so key. I mean, I often, I meet so many lawyers at different areas um, of PQE and areas of specialism. And I'm often, if I'm honest, being really honest with you, Harry, I'm amazed sometimes when I meet some lawyers, certainly at the more senior level, mm. um, and I ask them, you know, kind of what their billing figures are for the past three years. Uh, and they can't tell me. Mm. And I say, well, we don't really, you know, have um, records of our billing or we don't really operate like that here. Um, but you've got to know those figures. You've got to know the numbers. You've got to mm. know what you're billing. You've got to know what your competitors are billing at your level of PQE. Um, because you're, the firm you join, they'll be asking you because essentially they'll be, con- they'll be concerned about the revenue which their team or their department are uh, producing year on year. And they want to know what value you can add. So you've got mm. to know your billing figures. You've got to know essentially how profit and loss sheet, you know, profit and loss sheet works. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to understand the workings of a business, uh, the accounts. Um, it's pivotal for your career development, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, and certainly if you're aspiring for partnership, you've got to know. You've got to, you've got to be commercially aware. So it's clearly important, and you've hinted there at an, an example of kind of lawyers falling short of that that key level of understanding. What, what do you think are some of the most common? misconceptions or failures that that lawyers make when it comes to applying these skills of of business development and commercial awareness i think a lot of i think a lot of junior lawyers coming through that are certainly that i meet um Mm. i I think they they underestimate the need to be commercially aware Mm. um i think they underestimate the importance of business development i think a lot of lawyers think that being a great lawyer being a good lawyer is enough um, mm. Obviously, it's massively important because yeah. you're working in the industry, um, and it is. You know, it's essential to be seen to be writing articles, getting awards. You know, but even if you're, you know, one of those lawyers getting an award year on year on year on, but you're not hitting your numbers, mm. um, or you don't have a, a client following, you're gonna you're gonna find yourself in a bit of a problem. It's all about the numbers, and and that's this is why we have you look at the top two hundred law firms, and they're they're ranked in terms of their turnover. Mm. Um, and that's for a reason. Yeah. So it's just being acutely aware of the fact that you, you, you've got to get on top of that aspect of your career development as quickly as possible. Mm. I've often thought a lot about that question myself in terms of where does this lack of kind of appreciation for the business side of law come from? And thinking about it for me, I think it starts at the university level in that the university law degree is great at teaching you what the law is in terms of the letter of the law and thinking about it as an academic study. Um, but when it comes to actually picking up those those skills of, of, of practicing it and applying it in a business context, um, it's quite unclear as to where that should take place on the kind of legal education timeline of a lawyer. So what are your thoughts on kind of where this mis- misappreciation or undervaluing of these skills has come from and, and, and how do you think we can address it really? Yeah, it's a good one. I mean, a very wise senior partner once said to me um, when I was 
I was lucky enough to have him as one of my supervisors. Um, mm. I think some people would probably say different, but I, I, you know, he was uh, he was he was a very senior guy when I was working with him. He'd be, he'd be well retired now. But I mean, he often used to refer to um, a front front of house lawyer and a back mm-hmm. office lawyer. And he said that you know there was two types of lawyer. There was, as I said, the back office lawyer, the front front of office, front of house lawyer. Um, and he said, you know, to be in, to be both is the best of both worlds. Mm. Essentially, you know, you can head down in the books and you can be relied upon, but also if you can be the person that could be willed out for the the marketing events, then fantastic. So a bit of both is great. To rely on simply just being um, the back office lawyer, the backroom lawyer, you know, those those days have gone. Um, mm. I think essentially we've, you, you've all now got to be in a position where you're willing to put your face as the, you know, be the face of the firm. Mm. Um, and I think that has to start as soon as you either start paralegaling or as soon as you start your training contract. I mean, any opportunity, if you're, if you're a tra- any trainees listening to this particular podcast, any of you that are essentially embarking on your, your training contract, any opportunity you have to attend an event, be there. Mm. I mean, even if you're there, <laughs> Pouring red, you know, red wine and white wine, which I've done <laughs> on a multitude of occasions when I started out in my career. Be yeah. there, do it. Hand out the name badges, work the room, watch how the senior partners are working the room. You know, look at the body language, um, and just learn from those early events, and that will really help you, I think, in just identifying what you need to be doing. And they're easy ways of just slowly just moving, you know, moving into the, you know, to the moving into the circles of business development and, and watching how it's done mm, that's really interesting and I, I, it echoes what i've tried to do at least when it comes to networking events and i think the more you expose yourself to it the more you kind of get more comfortable and and you kind of move past those initial anxieties and and kind of and learn more about what it is that you need to be doing at those sort of things and, and ultimately building those connections which is really important so on that note we've talked a little bit about how networking was kind of key to all of this business development what was your kind of approach initially when you're at that more junior level when it came to reaching out and, and kind of making connections and, and how do you think that's now changed now that you've kind of gone through the the seniority levels of- yeah it's, it's interesting I mean look I was quite lucky I suppose in the sense that my you know my grandfather in particular he was you know very active on the political circuit you know mm-hmm. rotary any any organization you know, he seemed to be involved in um mm-hmm. but he was he was all you know often would take me with him so I remember going to dinners like rotary dinners or political dinners where you'd sit and you know and have to engage with you know adults when I was 14 and <laughs> round the dinner table absolutely round the <laughs> dinner table 14 15 um and almost mingle network and they, they, they were really really essential um learning steps for me which you know have helped me massively but I mean it's uh, but I appreciate it's not for everyone and I think that and it could be and it can be really difficult for some people I mean I, I've mm. met colleagues in the past I've worked with who find it you know really really hard to find the mm. confidence to to go to a networking event so I think the best advice for those people who struggle with it I think first and foremost is to find someone in your office that you you know you trust and you work with well you know a friend a friendly colleague mm-hmm. um, ask you know ask to attend some events with them so essentially go in pairs work mm-hmm. a, work a room in, a, in as a pair initially um, if your friend is something more, co- colleague is more confident than you, um, that's the first step. Just start going to events with someone else and watch how they how they essentially engage with people. Mm. Um, one thing it might sound odd, but I think it's a really good thing to consider. If you're someone who's 
open to the possibility of developing your skills in terms of confidence. I mean, if there's mm. a local amateur dramatics group or acting group near to where you live, <laughs> go along. It's, yeah. it, it will work wonders for your confidence. If you're, you know, I used to love a bit of amateur dramatics growing up. It's, it's, it, it, you know, it does. It does really help with confidence. Yeah, I echo that as well because I did the same thing at university. I was part of the uh, Musical Theatre Society and, it, and it's funny how those extracurricular activities kind of really do bolster your confidence, especially when it comes to being on a stage. Because so. it puts you outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. So if you're asked to sit in a circle and then do an improvisation, um, <laughs> you think, oh God, do I really have to do this? But once you've done it, you come out, you'll, you'll be buzzing. And I mean, if you then apply that same skill in a, mm. in a room full of people, um, that really helps massively. And the other thing as well, when you're in those rooms and you're networking, I can assure you, you know, possibly even 80% of the people mm. in that room don't want to be there. There's only 20% yeah. of that room who really know how to network it. So look for, the, look for that person that's possibly also struggling um, with their confidence or struggling with having to even be in that room at that particular point. Beeline mm. for that person, make a conversation and immediately you'll just relax into it. Um, so that would, that's certainly my tip in terms of, you know, how to approach it when you're there. In terms of, you know, what I did, um, I mean, set up networking groups, my own networking groups. I mean, I developed a, a networking group in Hampstead called Hampstead's Bi- Hampstead Business Hub. Um, right. Initially, back when I worked in Hampstead as a divorce lawyer, there weren't, I think there was one other firm in Hampstead that did divorce law. Um, mm. So I thought, you know, how, how could I establish myself in this, in this, in this, in this town as being a divorce lawyer, so I set up a networking group. It got to the point where Hampstead Business Hub had 40-plus um, professionals coming once a month to Café Rouge to network, um, mm. which is an amazing way to, to network and, and kind of get your name out there. Um, in terms of how it's changed now, I mean, I don't think it has changed. I think there's, there's certainly a greater need for it, but mm. there are so many different platforms that you can, you can join or get involved with to help you with that business development side of your practice no that's really interesting and and i guess when it comes to partner level and you're kind of thinking about interacting with clients if anything it's it's going more from just i want to make this connection on a personal level but also i'm here representing the firm and it's it's potential business revenue stream and and that's kind of what i'm looking for in in that business development skill so how what was your kind of approach when it came to i guess selling to clients did you sell to clients at networking events or was it a bit more nuanced than that it was difficult for me because i was a divorce lawyer uh, yeah true <laughs> so i was often the one that would um, close conversation pretty quickly when i was asked what i did for a job um, so uh, funny enough on that note the best place for me i have to find I used to find for getting clients was often at weddings believe oh. it or not. <laughs> the, the, the time was about anywhere between 9 30 p.m and 11 p.m where just after the dinner wine and absolutely like you'd get people <laughs> call, call you and say oh julie mentioned that you're a divorce lawyer luke and it would oh, often dear. be over the hand dryer in the uh, gentleman's <laughs> toilet so uh, it's often an interesting conversation i've had at weddings um yeah. but at networking events um it, yeah, I mean, in, yeah, I would often sell my, my, you often used to sell the practice that I was working at when it came to networking events. Um, but then as a result of that, by default, you are in, indirectly selling yourself. Mm. So um, it's a question of how you come across in those events. Um, and you'll find um, that you would then get work indirectly that would come off how you how you presented yourself. But I mean, in terms of what you can do today, I mean, there's so many avenues to mm. networking events, seminars. Um, social media, you know, um, blogs, podcasts, mm. Q and A's. Um, I mean, there's in fact for the for those people for those people who aren't necessarily confident face to face, there's mm. actually arguably more avenues now and and probably more powerful avenues to promote mm. your brand without even having to 
to leave the office. Mm. Um, and this uh, a podcast is, is an example of one of those, um, and as our blogs. So I think it's probably easier now. It's really funny you say that, actually, because I'm just thinking back to when I started blogging and all this kind of podcasting stuff about six months ago. And I think for the first four months or three months, I never really left my bedroom when it came to doing all this stuff. And it was only after I'd kind of built that initial following and connections and, and started meeting new people that it came to physical face-to-face stuff. So it's a great way to kind of learn more about the industry and to, and to build up your, I guess, exposure to, well, yeah, to those but, sort of but things. Well, yeah, you're a classic example of it, Harry. And I said that to you mm. when I reached out, reached out to you on LinkedIn. I mean, mm. I'm someone who's, what, 12, P, you know, 12 PQE, two years in recruitment, so essentially 15, 16 years, including my training contract in business. And you're, mm. you've not even yet embarked on your training contract, yet your following on LinkedIn is far far outnumbers mine and probably most others um kind of in the recruitment or or, or legal industry so it's just it just goes to show what can be done a if you put the effort in and you find the right channel that works for you This episode of the More From Law podcast is sponsored by The Legist. Looking to find your next role or find the right employee? The Legist full-service online platform can help. By using smart technology to keep the recruitment process as simple and transparent as it can be, you can filter opportunities not just by location and role, but by practice area, PQE level, employee benefits, and many other factors. If you're looking to hire, accompany job listings with pre-interview questions, categorize them effectively, and have a live listing in minutes. You can advertise all your legal vacancies with Legis at www.thelegis.co.uk, also offering free job listings for legal intern, volunteer, and training contract positions. So we've talked a bit about this episode about this business development and commercial awareness side of things, but I did want to get your thoughts on, I guess, the the legal career sort of timeline of what lawyers go through when it comes to that first day in the office on the training contract right through to where you eventually reach with your kind of equity partnership. And the reason I wanted to talk about it is because I think a lot of law students and even potentially junior lawyers have a bit of a misconception or lack of understanding when it comes to what those things actually involve on a day-to-day basis and kind of how to climb that quote-unquote corporate ladder when it comes to going from one role to the next um, and even and even kind of figuring out if that's what they want to do. So starting from the beginning then, when you're on that first day of the training contract, what is it all about and what is your kind of tips as to how to do a training contract well, for want of a better word? Yeah, I think... When I look back now over my career, I mean, there's so many different things that I would have done differently. Mm. Um, And I mean, the first is it's very easy for a firm to railroad trainees um, into doing seats that the trainees probably or possibly don't want to do Mm. simply because of headcount in other Mm. departments. So, um, and that's happened to me. That's only happened to me. So I think stand you know stand firm about what it is you want to do so Mm -hmm. decide your seats before you embark on your training contract if you find you're getting railroaded into another seat stand firm on that if you find yourself in a situation where you're six months on a seat you're asked to extend that seat which i which happens all the time Mm -hmm. um and if you don't want to do it say no Mm -hmm. but i think often the danger is when you're a trainee you'll say yes because you don't want to be seen to upsetting you know um, your position within the firm and yeah. I get that um, however what you'll find is if you then extend your seat for an additional six months you end up doing you know 
well, it's not six, three months, isn't it, per seat? Three or six. So, but the thing is, if you extend your seat um, in one particular area, you often find once you've then finished, you know more about that seat than you do others. And you think, oh, okay, well, perhaps it's easier for me just to qualify into that area of law. Mm. And it might not have been the area you wanted to qualify into. So I think just have the confidence to say no. Um, mm. Again, with, with training, when you're, when you're training, have the confidence to um, confine in other partners if you find yourself working with a supervisor or a partner that isn't putting enough time into you. Mm-hmm. Because you only get one shot at a training contract. Um, and it's it's really important that you get the right support and you're working with the right people. Mm. So that, that would be my advice on, on, on training. Um, but with, with the business development side of things, as I said, always volunteer as much as you can. Yeah. Um, and then when you're, when you're obviously when you qualify into your department, um, just buddy up with people, um, find a mentor, find someone that you relate to that's something more senior to you in the team, perhaps not a partner, super, you know, mm-hmm. a senior associate or, or more senior member of the team. Um, and just you know, find someone you can work with, confide in any issues you have. So that would be my advice. Then just working your way through, it comes down to billing. Yeah. You know, it comes down <laughs> to performing well, not making mistakes, um, making sure you're getting your bills in on time, and and you're you know you're getting on with your team. I mean that's paramount. I mean mm. to you know you, you've got to be someone that's willing to be a team player. No one likes someone who's not. I mean that's mm. just a fact of life. And you've got to be seen to be a team player. You've got to be seen to want to get involved. Um, and then in terms of getting to the you know the, the pinnacle that is partnership, if that's what mm. you want, um, you, you've got to have a business case. You've got to have proved yourself. Um, in that timeline, whether it be at the same firm or another firm. But I'm happy to talk about that now. You know, with Yeah, you. sure. I mean, I did also want to ask you a bit about kind of what that role involves, because I think there's a big move when you go up the seniority, at least in, in, in most firms, of going from getting hands-on legal work, you know, the nitty-gritty details of, of proofing documents and drafting documents, things like that. And then when you get through to that partnership level, especially equity partner, your role almost completely shifts to one of almost a manager and a business development uh, kind of person like we've talked about. So what were your kind of thoughts on that and how you saw your role change before you day-to-day as you went up that seniority level? Yeah, my thoughts on that are that, you know, lawyers aren't managers and they don't mm. set out to be. I mean, that's the, that's the crazy thing about law. I mean, you go through the kind of the legal more junior journey and then you find yourself in a position where you have equity or, or you know, simply just a, a non-equity member but you're essentially mm. a manager of people and I think it's I always used to always try and remember what it was like to be the person pouring the wine standing <laughs> over the photocopier being covered in toner, toner. I always yeah. I, funny enough I was I, I think I was allergic to the toner cartridges so oh, I no. used to find myself just standing over the photocopier just my nose would be streaming <laughs> I think, and I think, and I look back now, thinking I'm pretty sure there'd be some form of uh, <laughs> safety measures in place if yeah. if you'd have seen the, the state of me. I, yeah, I, I can stand it, but you know, just photocopying bundles, copious amounts of bundles. But I, I, you know, I remember doing that stuff, paginating bundles, bundles. It's just remembering what it was like to be there, um, mm. and just being sensitive to that to that fact, really. Um, so yeah, so when you obviously you're part of you're managing people. Um, but it, I'll come back to that. But I think what I want to touch upon, I think, in terms of partnership is that, and if there are any, peop- any people obviously listening to this podcast who are moving towards a kind of senior associate level of their career, mm. is just, I, I find some of the most difficult candidates to place can often be those candidates that are, say, 
anywhere between eight and 12 PQE mm. that are at senior associate level at a firm and haven't really made partner yet or don't appear to be on the partner track. And why is that, do you think? Uh, the why, the, the why it is is because when I'm asked by HR um, or partners at other firms, when I put forward that candidate to, to an interview, um, I'm asked the question, why are they not partner? Why are, why are they not on a partnership track? What you know is it? Are we missing something here? Is there something we need to be wary of? Um, mm. Are they not a people person? Are they not a team player? Um, what's their billing like? So immediately there is a there's almost a kind of a shadow of doubt that just yeah. appears over that CV before they've even met the person. So I often have to say, look, I've met this person. They're fantastic. They're you know exceptionally good lawyer, very friendly. There just appears to be. Um, you know, it, seems, it appears to be very crowded at the top. Um, mm. So they recognise that and that's why they're looking to make the move now. So that then leads me on to the point of timing. Mm. You need to be acutely aware, I think, when you're going through this stage of your career, when is the right time to stay and when is the right time to go. Mm-hmm. So if you're not seeing that partnership track starting to kind of become clear from about 8 PQE, mm-hmm. you need to start thinking whether it's time to move on. Um, because if you leave it too long, if you get to 10, 11 PQ and you still haven't made partner, um, then you're going to be in a bit of a difficulty because, well, yeah, you are. And I think the reality is you, you'll also need to be in a situation where you build a business case. And there's that expectation as well that something's gone wrong, like you kind of hinted at as to why it's not there. Yeah. I guess a, a few people listening though will be unsure as to whether partnership is for them. Yeah. And so, you know, what what questions would you would you I guess ask someone who is kind of considering that that partnership route to to kind of ascertain as to whether they've either got the right stuff or really got the right motivations for kind of wanting to get to that stage of their career. But like, the thing is, whenever I speak to people, I you know I, I don't having been a partner and having met just as many happy lawyers who are non partners. Um, you know, it's perfectly acceptable to go into li- into law and not become a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a partner to look back on your legal career and think, wow, you know, I made it. I mean, you could yeah. be um, a senior associate, uh, legal counsel, any number of different titles, legal director, um, and still have a marvellous legal career and have a very happy life and earn relatively good money. Um, mm-hmm. So, it, and if you feel that you don't want the pressure of being a manager... You don't want the pressure of taking on the liability that comes with being a partner because let's face it, it's a business at the end of the day you buy into. So, mm. you know, that comes with risk. Yeah. So if that's not for you, then fine. Um, but it's, you know, it's a bit of a dog-eat-dog um, world when you're into the partner world. Um, yeah. You know, you're expected to be not only the face of a, of a, of a team, department, you're also responsible for being one of the higher billers. So you've got mm. to have the, you know, the bills behind you. Um, and that, that leads me on to the business case scenario. You know, you're not going to make partnership um, at an existing firm unless it's simply just on loyalty alone or, or mm. any future firm you want to move to without having some form of client following. So you mentioned the importance a bit of a client following. Could you just expand a bit more what you meant by that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you asked me that, Harry, because often some senior lawyers will ask me, you know, what do I, what does that actually mean in, in, in mm. real terms? Essentially, what that means is um, your book of business, what amount of um, work in terms of 
billable work um, mm-hmm. could you bring with you if you were to join you know X X firm? So essentially, if you're someone who's, say for example, you're bidding five hundred thousand as a commercial property lawyer in London, mm-hmm. what percentage of your kind of average five hundred thousand pounds billing per year do you think would follow you? Would say, look, you know, where's where's Harry Clark moved to? Um, mm-hmm. I want to know where he's moved to. Sorry, we can't tell I don't you know that. <laughs> we can't tell you, I'm afraid. Um, and then I'll find your LinkedIn. Um, and obviously, you've obviously got restricted covenants. So you need, to, you know, you obviously need to be aware of when you move. And your, mm-hmm. you know, the, the firm you join will obviously be be prepared for that. Um, but clients will find you, and it's a question of putting a a rough percentage on those clients and ref, you know, that you think would would want to know where Harry's gone. Um, mm-hmm. And you you sit back and say to yourself, if I was to open my own law firm in my garden shed tomorrow morning how many of those mm-hmm. clients do I think would want to find me and allow me to earn a living and if you thought right it's I'd say probably 300,000 of those clients in terms of my billing I could bring with me that would be a mm-hmm. way of just working out your essentially your client following your business case and how do you ascertain which clients are part of that well obviously there'll be clients there'll be there'll be two types of clients there'll be clients of the firm and then there'll be clients mm-hmm. of yours so obviously clients of the firm is often the gray area and that's where you obviously have to make sure you've sought legal advice through the firm you're joining to, mm-hmm. to ensure that you're not falling foul of restricted covenants. Um, mm-hmm. But then there'll be your clients. There'll be those clients that have followed you in your legal journey that you know are will only work with you. And if you get to a certain level of seniority in your legal career, you'll know who they are and you'll know year on, year off, which sorry, what amounts that you essentially bill from those clients. Mm-hmm. And then you'll have your referrers you have people who are not necessarily clients, but they're people who refer work to you. Um, so again, a simple example of that would be property law. If you're a high, you know high net worth residential property lawyer working in Chelsea, for example, and you're billing you know seven hundred thousand a year, you'd think to yourself, you know, there'd be numerous amounts of estate agents in and around that area that you know are referrers mm. of work to you. So it's a question of knowing, you know, what percentage of work do I get from those referrers each year? What does that then translate to in terms of billing? And then you'd put that together in a business plan. Often the law firms that you look to move to for partnership will ask you to prepare a business plan. Mm-hmm. Any, you know, any recruiter or headhunter kind of worth their weight will will know how to assist you in preparing a business plan to put to put mm-hmm. forward to the um, the firm you're joining. And then obviously that will then you know, help you and translate into kind of what amount it is you think you could bring with you. And as I said, mm-hmm. our, you know, on the partner placements that I make or have made, um, if I'm honest, I haven't made one where there hasn't been a need for a business case. Um, mm-hmm. you, you're going to need that. And it's just a fact of life. As I said, as I go back to my point at the beginning, you know, law is law is very, very much a business now. Um, mm-hmm. And it really comes down to the bottom line, how much can you make for us? So if you've recognised that, you know, there's certain aspects of your personality as a lawyer now that you think you need to brush up on in terms mm-hmm. of building your own personal brand, as I said before, you know, perhaps invest in some time with a business coach, go to a local Amdram group, mm-hmm. um, just find ways in which in which you can build your confidence to help then build your brand. Well, that's great. And a really great way to tie it back to what we talked about at the beginning of the episode. So uh, <laughs> a really, really interesting discussion on on kind of business development more generally and, and how it's influenced you in, in your role to to, to reach an equity partner stage where, where can people go to learn more about you and to get in touch with you um, to learn more about me they can find me on LinkedIn so it's mm-hmm. Luke Thompson um, and the company that I'm a director at is Intro Legal 
So um, we, we had a bit of fun designing the logo. Um, so it's intro. Oh, I have to check it out. Yeah, in, introducing <laughs> the next legal role. So the word "role" is in, in the name of the in the name of the uh, company, which we thought was quite fun. Oh, um, oh nice! So you could find me there. And as I said, anyone who wants to just drop me a message on LinkedIn, I'm always always happy to answer any questions um, on any person's kind of stage in their legal career. I mean, there are so many different. One thing I would say now that's very different to when I kind of started out. There are so many different support networks now. There's so much out there encouraging people to explore different avenues of business development, commercial awareness, um, and you know, and there's also so much, so, so much, so, so so much support in terms of um, mental health, yeah, and, you know, and, and stuff like that. So you know, mentoring. So I think it's a really good time actually um, to enter into legal profession, and um, yeah, and good luck to everyone who's who's listening and, and on the next stage of their journey. Uh, you've imparted some great wisdom so thanks so thanks, much Harry. for coming on the show I really appreciate it no, thank you thanks for having me thanks so much for listening to this episode of the More From Law podcast if you enjoyed the episode and want to support the show please share it with your network and leave a review on the iTunes store it's really appreciated if you want to stay up to date on the show follow and subscribe to the More From Law podcast on your podcast platform of choice or follow me on Instagram Twitter and LinkedIn at the profile Harry Clark Law see you in the next episode